0: Hey, everybody. This is Chuck Moran with Strong Towns. Thanks for listening. Last week, I was in Lafayette, Louisiana. And it, one of the evenings we were working there, I was asked to participate in a debate with Randall O'Toole. For those of you that don't know Randall O'Toole, he goes online by the moniker Anti-Planner. He is a, a fellow with the Cato Institute. He's got some other titles too, but he's a libertarian thinker who uh, is against is against planning. Uh, his his actual website says he is dedicated to the sunset of government planning. And uh, I've I found Randall Toole an, an interesting character of sorts over the years. Um, I uh, read some of his stuff in graduate school and actually compared to some of the other stuff I was getting, thought he made some good points and found a, a little bit refreshing. Uh, on the other hand, uh, he has a very narrow view of government, particularly at the, the local level, uh, that I don't subscribe to. The idea we were debating that night was the merits of Plan Lafayette. The city uh, has adopted a, a new comprehensive plan. Uh, adopted a uniform development code to go along with it. Uh, a lot of this stuff is very consistent with Strong Town's principles. Uh, it is lowering government intervention. It is lessening rules. It is allowing more choice in the market. Uh, part of Plan Lafayette called for the study that Joe Minicosi and I have been doing to actually get an understanding of where the city is, is spending money and where the city is, uh, is getting its money from. Uh, a, a basic, like, financial accounting. And I say basic in the sense that it, it, you'd think every city would have this. No city has this. Lafayette is the first one who's putting it together. Uh, it, it's very detailed work, but it's, it, it's a, answers some basic fundamental questions about how the city grows and develops. Uh, So Randall O'Toole and I debated – the debate went uh, over two hours. I'm going to give you – in this podcast segment here, I'm going to give you the opening statements and the rebuttals. And then uh, in a subsequent podcast, which I'll I'll do here pretty quick – I won't wait a whole week to get this one released – I'm going to uh, release the Q&A. Um, we broadcast this live on a webcast. And, uh, you know, I know the audio wasn't great with the webcast. We had quite a few people complain like, Hey guys, we're not CNN. Uh, I've got like a webcam and Joe's computer. So we did the best we could. Uh, some of the audio was on the radio and there's actually probably a better audio recording that I've got of the opening statements and the rebuttals. You can get that on our website at StromTowns.org. Uh, if you're going to go through, if you want to listen to it through YouTube. Um, But the YouTube one cuts off through the Q&A, and and I actually had my own kind of hand recorder uh, sitting there on the table recording the entire thing. So I've got all the audio. Uh, We'll release the first part of it now, and then look for uh, the Q&A in a subsequent episode. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being part of the Strong Towns movement, and keep doing what you can to build Strong Towns.
1: You are listening to
2: the Strong Towns Podcast
1: So, uh, those folks are joining us now, of course, at uh, K-12 96.5. So, with that, having said that, um, just keep in mind when we go to our question and answer portion this evening, just remember to uh, monitor our keys and keys. I guess it would be a good thing because it is uh, live radio as well this evening. And thank you very much, all of you, for coming. I know we'll be expecting some more people as well. And we're really looking forward to this, um, as Mr. Richard was saying, about opening our minds, and it is about opening our our minds and our hearts, uh, listening to these two presentations by these two gentlemen who have come together to do this uh, for all of us tonight, and to really delve into some of the issues. And people said, well, what about this question and answer period? Well, you know, the question and answer period, we're hoping for everybody to get involved, even if you think your question is something that might have already been covered. Don't be shy. Definitely raise your hand when we get to that portion and ask your question. You know your perception on what's happening with Plan Lafayette, or your perception of what you want for the city of Lafayette, may be completely different from mine. Maybe you, you know, want something in particular. So definitely bring those questions forward with you this evening. I want to say a thank you also uh, to Ken Romero and Dr. John Sutherland for letting us be a part of their afternoon show tonight. And of course, we have two gentlemen here who are going to be giving presentations tonight, and I want to tell you a little bit about both of them. Um, we decided uh, to make it easy for logistical purposes. We're going to let Mr. O'Toole go first this evening. But the two gentlemen here are on my left. Randall O'Toole is a Cato Institute Senior Fellow working on urban growth, public land, and transportation issues. O'Toole's research on national forest management, culminating in his 1988 book, Reforming the Forest Service, has had a major influence on forest service policy and on-the-ground management. His analysis of urban land use and transportation issues, brought together in his 2001 book, The Vanishing Automobile and Other Urban Myths, has influenced decisions in cities across the country. In his book, The Best Laid Plans, O'Toole calls for regular federal, state, and local planning laws and proposes reforms that help to solve some of the social and environmental issues without any heavy-handed government regulation. O'Toole's latest book is American Nightmare, How Government Undermines the Dream of Homeownership. O'Toole is the author of numerous K.O. papers. He's also written for Regulation Magazine, as well as op-eds and articles for numerous other national journals and newspapers. O'Toole travels extensively and has spoken about free-market environmental issues in dozens of cities. An Oregon native, O'Toole was educated in Forestry at Oregon State University and in Economics at the University of Oregon. Please help me welcome Randall O'Toole.
3: All right, well, I apologize for that technical glitch, but we've got it all working now. Uh, Imagine you were living in Lafayette in 1915 instead of 2015, and you're writing Plan Lafayette at that time, and you're looking around and you're saying, what, Uh uh-oh, we have, uh,
1: hmm? There we go. You're looking
3: around and saying, what does Lafayette need in the next 10 to 20 years? Well, you look around and you say, well, there's this newfangled form of transportation called streetcars. They have them in New Orleans and they even have them in Lake Charles. We don't have one here in Lafayette. So we need to have a streetcar. So let's build some streetcars in Lafayette. The problem is that you may not realize it, but up north in Detroit, in Dearborn, uh, Henry Ford is mass producing. Millions of Model T Ford, and within 10 years, more than half of all American families are going to have an automobile. And Lake Charles is going to tear out its streetcar because nobody wants to ride the streetcar anymore. So you just spent a whole lot of money on the wrong thing. Okay, today we are on the verge of another transportation revolution. It's called self driving cars. And Google, and Volkswagen, and Ford and a whole bunch of other companies are developing self-driving cars, and within five years, you'll be able to drive a car like this one. They can drive on city streets, on highways. You can be able to get in the car and say, take me to work, take me to grandma's house. You can put your dogs in the car and send them to the vet. Uh, People won't be complaining about single occupancy vehicles, they'll be complaining about zero occupancy vehicles. Driverless cars are gonna revolutionize our lives as much as a Model T Ford revolutionized the lives of our great-grandparents 100 years ago. And yet, I don't see anything in Plan Lafayette or any other plan written in this country for a metropolitan or city area about self-driving cars and about what those cars are gonna do. Instead, what are cities doing? Atlanta, just built a streetcar. Dallas is building a streetcar. Portland is building a streetcar. A hundred and twenty-year-old technology, and they're saying this is for a, 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 a 21st century city. It's not. It's obsolete, it's outdated, it's a waste of money. Plan Lafayette fortunately isn't proposing a streetcar, but one of the goals is to reduce single occupancy vehicle use and get people out of their cars and on to transit. Why? Transit is really expensive. Driving a car, Americans spend about 25 cents a passenger mile driving a car. If you just count local roads, almost all the subsidies to roads are local, uh, city and parish, and the local subsidies are about 4 cents a passenger mile in uh, uh, Louisiana. So we're talking about almost 30 cents a passenger mile. By comparison, Lafayette Transit is almost a dollar a passenger mile, more than three times as expensive as driving on local city streets and parish roads. So talking about getting people out of their car and onto transit means getting people out of cheap transportation and onto expensive transportation. And it's not any greener. Even though they have a few green buses, the average Lafayette tra- transit bus uses as much energy or more energy per passenger mile than the average car. Despite the fact that transit is more expensive and less green than driving, we see places like Washington State passing a law mandating a 50% reduction in per capita driving. If they achieve that then per capita driving in Washington, will be less than in Puerto Rico. <laughs> and we see in Plan Lafayette all kinds of things. And we see on my opponent's website, all kinds of things demonizing the automobile, saying we have to slow down cars. We have to take away lanes of traffic and give them to the bicycles. They say, uh, Mr. Marone says, these kinds of roads, which are, he calls roads, but uh, are formally called arterials, are dangerous. And these kinds of roads, which he calls streets, but are informally in, called uh, collectors, are, are less dangerous. So we need to take these kinds and turn into these kinds. Have lots of bike paths and wide sidewalks and, and lots of places where you're going to be stuck in traffic. Uh, the problem is, that's not what the data show. We look at New York, it's true that arterials are a little more dangerous than collectors, but locals are far more dangerous than anyone. But here in Louisiana, local roads and collector roads are both more dangerous than arterial roads. So moving from arterial, from collectors to uh, local roads, which is, or from arterials to collector roads, which is what he's advocating, will create more dangerous conditions, not less dangerous. The reality is that cars are safer, they're cleaner, and they're more fuel efficient every year, and these trends are expected to continue for as long as the future as we can foresee. So within 10 years, cars will be more fuel efficient than the most efficient mass transit system in America. Automobiles also have brought to us huge benefits. Just look at the mobility changes because of the automobile. Back in 1915, there was almost no driving, and total mobility per person was about 1,000 miles a year. Today, the average American travels 18,000 miles a year, 85% of it by car, and if you didn't have cars, you wouldn't be able to have that mobility because other kinds of transportation are just too expensive. Transit, intercity rail, and so on are just way too expensive compared to driving. Because driving is so cheap, we are far more mobile. Because it's fast, we can reach far more jobs. Incomes have grown, have exploded in the last century because of that increasing accessibility and mobility. And yet the cost of driving has remained constant. Even though the amount of driving has exploded, the amount that we spend of our incomes that we spend on driving has remained almost exactly 9%, plus or minus 1% or so uh, for the past 50 or 60 years. Driving has also given us access to lower cost consumer goods, better housing, all kinds of things. Notice the huge jump in, in home ownership rates because of the increasing automobile ownership gave people access to cheap land in the urban frame where they can buy it, build a house, and live in it. Now, home ownership is really important too. This is Steve Jobs, the house that Steve Jobs grew up in. Famously, he started the Apple computer business in his garage. More importantly, people who own houses can borrow money against the equity in their house and start small businesses, and that's how most small businesses get started. Even more importantly, children in homes that are owned by their parents do better in school than children in homes that are rented. And that's especially true for low- and middle-income people. It's not so much true for high-income people. So for low and middle income people, home ownership rates are really important. And anything you do that makes housing more expensive and drives down home ownership rates is gonna hurt children. So Plan Lafayette says, we want to encourage people to live in high density. We want them to live in apartments rather than in houses, single family homes. Now, there's a market for this. It's a small market. There's a market for this kind of living. I think it's kind of probably close to being saturated in Lafayette. We don't need the government saying you need to get more people living that way. my former hometown of Portland, they said 65% of families are living in single-family homes. We are going to, as a target, reduce that to just 41%. And uh, in fact, the rest of the people will live in multi-family homes. Now, it turns out 17 out of 20 people living in single-family homes own their homes. 17 out of 20 people living in multi-family homes rent, so a war on... Single-family homes is effectively a war on home ownership and will effectively reduce the ability of people to do things like start small businesses, put their kids through school, and so on and so forth. By the way, Portland's great model of increasing densities and building lots of transit is a distinct failure. Uh, Between uh, 2008 and 2013, Portland gained 21,500 new jobs and negative 1,000 of them took transit to work, meaning 1,000 fewer people were taking transit to work in 2013 than in 2008. So all the money they spent on transit has been a big waste. Plan Lafayette also have the, has the goal of conserving farmland and open space. Why? 95% of Louisiana is farmland and open space. Why do you need to conserve it? Only about 40% of the farmlands in Louisiana are being used for growing crops. And most of our major crops, the per acre productivities are growing faster than our population. So the amount of land we need for farming is actually declining. So why do we need to impose high density housing on people to save something that's already tremendously overly abundant? It's ridiculous. The whole idea of increasing densities is absurd. people want to live in high density, they can move to New York, they can move to San Francisco, but we don't need to have government coming into Lafayette or other places and saying, we're going to increase your density. Increasing density means increasing housing costs. It means reducing housing affordability. Right now, according to Coldwell Banker, a middle-class home in Lafayette costs an average of $114 a square foot, you're already having a hard time competing against Lake Charles, which is only $100 a square foot. And you're heading on your way towards Austin, which has a comprehensive plan much like yours. And in Austin, they're spending $185 a square foot for homes. And then there's San Jose, $388 a square foot for homes. So I don't think you're going to get there anytime soon but that's really the model you're working towards. San Jose has been doing comprehensive planning since 1970. So the longer you do it, the more expensive
1: housing gets.
3: Another problem with comprehensive planning is it makes housing, it makes traffic worse. They say, oh, we've got congestion, we have to have comprehensive planning, and yet the things that the comprehensive planners always propose make congestion worse. For example, high-density housing doesn't take cars off the streets, instead it, it uh, compresses them into a few streets where the high density housing is located, making for more traffic congestion. Another problem with planning is that it encourages planners to become developers. It encourages them to write detailed prescriptions, such as these prescriptions in the Lafayette Unified Code for downtown buildings. Uh, 25% transparent glazing, meaning you have to have so many windows on your storefronts. You have to have awnings have to look a certain way. You have to have certain setbacks. Your buildings have to be, the, the floors have to be two feet above the ground level. All these rules that are going to make it more expensive and actually reduce, eliminate the, the natural characteristics of, of your community
0: not yeah. going to make it
3: interesting. So if your goal is to have a big auto wreck, wreck your economy, and burn up the American dream, then... Comprehensive planning is the way to go. But if your goals are something else, then you need to look at other techniques. I'm just about out of time now, but maybe, uh, in a later discussion we'll be able to talk about those other techniques. Thank you very much. And, we're and, we're and, we're and as we're being set up
1: here, I want to introduce to you Chuck Moreau. He is the engineer, planner, and president of the nonprofit organization Strong Towns. He has a bachelor's degree in civil engineering and a master's of urban and regional planning, both from the University of Minnesota. He's the author of two books, Thoughts on Building Strong Towns, and A World-Class Transportation System, both of which look at the financial implications of our development pattern. He writes for Strong Towns, as well as the American Conservative magazine. In addition to hosting his own weekly podcast for the past 15 years, he's been the conservative commentator on KASE's Making Sausage program. A veteran of the Minnesota Army National Guard, Chuck lives north of his hometown in Brainerd, Minnesota, with his wife, his two daughters, and his two dogs as well. If you were just joining us on News Talk 96 on K-Hell, this is our live presentation of Plan Lafayette in two different sides. Randall O'Toole, uh, we just had a moment to hear his presentation. Chuck Marone now will begin his presentation. Each will get a 10 minute remote period. If you'd like to join us here at the Light Center, you certainly may still do so. Five thirty-seven Pageantville Boulevard is the address. And just a reminder again to our folks who are joining us already here at the Light Center that it is a live broadcast. So just remember, no excited utterances. I'll now turn things over to Charles Moran. Chuck, please.
2: Thank you so much. Thank you everybody for being here tonight. Thank you everybody who's listening. Uh, thank you, Missoula Tool, for agreeing to do this. Uh, I live in a small town in central Minnesota. I uh, grew up. On the farm homestead of my great great grandparents. Went to university with Minnesota, became an engineer, came back to my hometown and started working. Uh, I worked for cities, I worked for developers, I built sewer systems, water systems, roads, streets, sidewalks, all the, the, the stuff that comprises the places in which we live. Uh, I believed very firmly in what I was doing. I believed I was building the American dream, I was giving people opportunity, I was giving people. Uh, places to build new homes, places to create jobs, places to create wealth. I was working largely for cities and places that were very successful, and were doing really well, that had a lot of growth. Yet I found, again and again and again, that we didn't have any money. We didn't have any money to do basic things. These aren't big, bloated governments. These were larger, small towns. Places with real tight, lean budgets. Places where you, you know, bootstrap everything that you do. And I found again and again, we were going out for grants, we were going to the federal government, the state government, we were playing the political game, we were hiring lobbyists, we were trying to do all this stuff we could do to piece together just basic things. How do we maintain a street? How do we maintain a sidewalk? How do we fix this pipe under this road that is leaking? And I started at one point to ask questions about what I was doing. Why is this, despite all the growth, not creating the prosperity that I thought it was, that I thought it should. And I started really with my own house. I, I did an analysis, the city had come out and paved the road in front of my house, and I looked at it, and I knew how much it cost. You know, I'm an engineer, I figured it out, I went to the meetings, I knew how much it cost. I knew how much I paid, and I had my tax statement, and I looked at it and I said, wow, based on the taxes that I'm paying on my place, it's gonna take the city 37 years to recoup the money they just spent to pave my road. Now the road won't last that long, but the finances of the city says it's going to take them that long just to break even. I started looking at other properties where we were working. Uh, this one was built in the early 1980s. The developer paid for all the infrastructure. It was rolled into people's housing prices and their mortgages. The city took on the long-term liability to fix it and maintain it. A generation later, they had to go out and make good on that promise. They spent $354,000. You look at the taxes being paid by the people in that development. What you find is that it's going to take the city 79 years to recoup that expenditure. That's vastly longer than what the road is actually gonna last. We asked the question, all right, let's pretend we were gonna raise enough money from these people here between now and the time the road fell apart again to actually have the money to fix it. What would that mean? It would mean an immediate 46% increase in taxes in annual increases of 3% over inflation every year for the next 25 years. And that was just for the road. I looked at commercial developments. I was working for a city that had a business park that was very successful. Uh, they had built this business park and they had uh, put, you know, opened it up and developers had come in and they had built different places. It was completely full and they were looking, saying, We want to build the same exact thing right on property we you own know, next door. And we looked at the numbers and said, All right, if we did that, the exact same amount of money with the exact same return, how would that work? And it would take the city 30 years to break even on this, 30 years if every single new property developed instantly with no subsidies, which every single one in there had been tax subsidized, either the TIF or some other type of tax subsidy, and every single penny of this revenue went to paying off this loan. That assumed that the rest of the taxpayers in the city would have their taxes go up, to pay plow the plow of snow off the roads and the mm-hmm. ditches and provide police protection and fire protection and every other service that would be needed. And that was in the most wildly optimistic day. Scenarios. I started to put this together, and I realized what was going on. What was going on is that it was very easy for us as engineers, very easy for us as city officials, very easy for us as a public to create new things, to create new growth, to add and expand, to add more sewer systems, add more water systems. What was really hard was finding the money to fix things, and there's a good reason for that. When a developer comes out and builds everything, and they can get, you know, subsidized money, They can get low interest rates. They can sell those off to individuals with mortgages, have that cost wrapped up in the mortgage. Again, subsidized transaction. When those things happen, the city takes on this long-term obligation. We'll fix the street. We'll maintain the pipe. And when you look at the cash flow for the city, what you see is that in those early years, it's all possible, right? We haven't paid anything. The developer paid it all. We're just bringing in money. We're just getting richer and richer and richer. The problem is, when you get out a a generation and you have to actually go out and make good on that problem, what we find is that the productivity of the development pattern, the way we've actually laid out these places and built them, doesn't generate enough wealth and enough prosperity to actually cover those costs. And so over the long term, from a cash flow standpoint, the city runs far in the negative. What do we do to deal with this? We don't know what we do, right? We try to get more growth. Because the more growth we get, the more cash we have, the more money we've got to do all the things we want to do. And so we develop this growth model, let's go get more growth, let's go get more growth. And if we take that last development and stack those on top of each other year after year after year, we get a, a, a cash flow that looks something like this. And yes, when we get out a generation and we have to make good on that very first promise, we've had all this growth, we take the money, and we can fix things. But what happens over time? When we lose money on every transaction, we don't make it up on volume. When we lose money on every project that we do, even though we're growing very fast, we outrun our cash. And from a cash flow standpoint, we go far, far in the name. Cities are stuck in this trap. They get into the second life cycle, they start taking on debt, they start doing all the little Ponzi scheme games that you do try to gin up more growth, and we'll get some tax subsidies here, we'll go get this federal grant here, we'll try to get this interchange here so we can get some quick growth. And in the process, they take on more and more and more liabilities. I started asking, this is a disaster. What, what, What actually works? And as I'm searching around for an answer to this question, I come across this photo of my hometown. This is my hometown back in 1904. This is not a great place, right? This was not a perfect place. I'm sure they had problems with their sewer systems and their water systems just like we do. But the one thing about this place that's different than our cities today is that they built this on their own. They built this out in the middle of nowhere. This place is two and a half hours north of Minneapolis-St. Paul today. It is the middle of the boondocks back then, right These people built this up in the middle of nowhere. Little bit by little bit by little bit. They didn't have the federal subsidies, they didn't have the tax increment financing, they didn't go build a bunch of infrastructure hoping they could get growth. They didn't take on all kinds of liabilities for the promised model. They built it slowly over time. As we have embraced this new development pattern, the pattern that we now call the American dream, the one I was out building as an engineer, we've taken places like this, and here's the exact same street today. We've seen this in cities all over the country, right? It's a wasteland of parking lots and half-occupied buildings. And if you want to understand in one snapshot why cities all over this country, including Lafayette, are struggling financially, no, but there's a half million dollars of public infrastructure sitting in that street. Where's the wealth that is gonna sustain that, generation after generation? We see this pattern over and over again. These are two identical lots in my hometown. If you look at them, they're the exact same size, same area, same amount of public infrastructure. The one on the left is an old and blighted block. The city's actually labeled it that They want to get it torn down. Two blocks over used to look the exact same. They had that one torn down, and now we got the brand new taco drive-thru, right? It's modern, it's shiny, it beats everyone's vision of what success is. The big problem is no one ever did the math. Because when you do the math, you find out that that block with the shiny and new actually gives the city far less taxes. That old blended, run down, junky block that was built 100 years ago by my great great grandparents and their contemporaries actually pays the city a higher rate of return. In the same amount of area, the city pays 42% more in taxes. And when we look over time, we did this analysis in 2012, but when we look what's happened over the past two years, what we see is that property values don't hold their value in our new way of building the way that they did in the way we built years and years ago. You see the same kind of thing on the edge of our communities. This is our big box store. This is our double-sized big box with an auto dealership, gas station. It's the most expensive, valuable piece of property in the entire area. This is the same amount of area in our poor downtown. Our rundown, if you ever saw the movie Fargo, depicts a not-so-flattering, but not-so- inaccurate portrayal of my hometown of Brandon, Minnesota. Uh, a lot of second, third stories unoccupied. A lot of rotating tenants in the first stories. But what do we see from a financial standpoint? The same area, the same uh, amount of space, we see that that old traditional development pattern, the way people built literally for thousands and thousands of years, has a much, much higher financial return. There's a reason people built this way. It's because they could viably maintain it, generation after generation after generation. (laughs) We spent a couple hundred million dollars on this. Highway bypass, running sewer out here, water out here, frontage roads, backage roads, all this stuff. And we called this growth. And for a long time, our budget was really flush because this made us feel really good, right? But that bill is coming due. And in the process of ginning up growth and creating some short term jobs, what did we do? We took on enormous long term liabilities. Liabilities that we do not have the tax base to sustain. We see this pattern of development in city after city after city. My friend Joe Manicozzi is sitting right here. These are some maps he put together. This is Buffalo, New York, one of those cities that was hollowed out after World War II, right? And when we plot the wealth, the the prosperity he created, the actual tax base per acre uh, of this city in the vertical, what we see is that everywhere we have a traditional development pattern, everywhere we have buildings that were built prior to this whole post-war experiment that we've now kind of called the American dream, Every time we have that, we see enormous financial prosperity. This is a little bit smaller town in upstate New York. We have the same kind of pattern. This is a little place by where I live. A little city of Crosby, 1,200 people. When I went there, they said, Chuck, uh, these neighborhoods we've got here are in serious decline. This stuff out here on the edge is where all the action is. We want to get more of that. And then we showed them, hey, all of your wealth are in those neighborhoods that you're undervalued. You're in those neighborhoods. Those are the places that are producing and have produced for you, for decades, your solid tax base. When we run the numbers in Lafayette, we see the same exact pattern. The same exact pattern. This is your city view. This is an analysis that Joe and I have done. And when you look at the green, what you're looking at are places, development patterns, where you, as a taxpayer, you, as a population, you, as a city, as a community, get more revenue back than you actually spend long term in service and maintenance. The places where you see red, which are all the stuff you've built post-World War II, all the stuff you've had growth over the last generation, all that stuff is being ready over the long term. We have had two generations of growth in this pattern, in this side that changes and asks us to exchange at the local level a short burst of growth and a short burst of jobs for enormous long-term liabilities. Plan Lafayette actually takes this on and actually says, you know what, we may not have every answer, we may not know everything we're doing, but boy, business as usual is not working for us. The way we've been doing things, kind of the way things have been going on, uh, that doesn't work. We're in some serious financial problems. We've gotta look at things differently. And I'll tell you what, if you're thinking, we need a plan here or not, I wanna show you this is the, the last image. This right here is uh, your MPO's projection for where growth is going to happen over the next 20 years. This is their plan. Now, who's the MPO? The, the, the Metropolitan Planning Organization. That's the federal entity essentially created some uh, channel gas tax dollars from the federal and state government to you. They've got a plan for you. They've figured out where your growth is going to go. It's going to go in all those areas that are bankrupting you. You need your own plan. You need to control your own future. You need to make your own decisions. And I'm not going to stand up here and say Plan Lafayette has zero faults, but I'm telling you, it is a
1: huge step in the right direction. Thank you. 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 We're going to pause for a 10-second required station ID if you'll just bear with us for about 10 seconds. We appreciate that. Ken's going to do that back in the studio. And thanks so much for your patience on that. Uh, we will have a 10 minute rebuttal period for each of our gentlemen uh, to come up here and give their thoughts about the other's presentation. And then we are going to open it up to questions and answers. Uh, if people are just joining us right now, I want to let them know that uh, News Talk 1965 Cable is presenting Plan Lafayette. Two experts here to discuss uh, a variety of different issues. Uh, Chuck Marone is an engineer, planner, and the president of the nonprofit organization Strong Towns. Randall O'Toole. Is a Cato Institute Senior Fellow working on urban growth, of public land, and transportation issues. These gentlemen coming to Lafayette uh, to give their presentations. We shall now begin with Mr. O'Toole's
3: rebuttal. Mr. O'Toole? Thank you. I better turn my mic on. Mr. Marone's presentation was extremely logical, extremely rational, and totally horrifying to me because. It puts the needs of the city treasury above the needs of the citizens who live in that city and the citizens who, in the future, will live in that city. It says, if the city has a screwed up tax system that doesn't collect taxes from everybody fairly, well, then we're going to create an unfair city and emphasize the parts of the city that collect the most taxes. If wealthy people pay more taxes than poor people, we're going to push the poor people out and bring more wealthy people in. If uh, meat markets pay less taxes than produce stores, then we're going to try to force more people to become vegetarians. Or if you're already a vegetarian, I don't know, are there any vegetarians in Louisiana? Then I would say if produce stores produce less revenue than meat markets, then we would try to force people to stop being vegetarians and becoming carnitarians. The point is, it's all based on revenues, it's all based on the current government cost structures, it's all based on the current government tax system, and accepts all that as a given, and then tries to reshape your lifestyles, and your needs, and your desires, just like they did in New London, Connecticut, where the city said, Suzette Kilo, you're a working class family, and all your neighbors are working class and you're not paying many property taxes, so we're going to take away your land and your houses and give it to a developer who will build high, upper-income houses, and they'll pay more property taxes, and they're more valuable to us than you are, we're going to kick you out.
1: As you may know,
3: they never built those expensive houses, so now her house is, the site of her house has become a dump, but the Supreme Court said, yes, government taxes prevail over the needs of the city residents. I think that's far apart. Instead of saying that, we need to look and see what is your cost structure, what is your tax system, maybe you need to change that to create a system that's really fair. I want to start out showing you this picture of self-driving cars. This is a valley parking car, you go to a hotel or a restaurant or work, and you get out of your car, and you say to your car, car, go park yourself. And it's got in his database of all the available parking spaces. It wanders around until it finds it, one that's empty, and then it parks itself in there. When you're done with work or whatever, you pull out your smartphone, and you pull up your app, and you say, car, come, and it comes and picks you up. Just think about how that's going to transform everybody's lives. And if the government is out there saying, we need more density, and you've got a smart car, you can just say, well, I can live 100 miles away from here and commute to work and I've got a little internet device on my car and while it's driving me to work, I can work in my car and I can get away from Lafayette Parish just trying to force me to live in high-density housing or trying to tell me I can only live in a single-family home if I'm willing to pay four or $500,000 for it. How are we going to pay for roads and things like that when we've got uh, a, a screwed-up tax system that doesn't work very well? I think we need to fix it. Oregon, my home state, has got an experiment going where we're changing from gas taxes to mileage-based user fees. It sounds a little frightening at first. I was one of the first people to volunteer for the experiment, and they sent me this little device. I plug it into my car, and now it keeps track of everywhere I drive. But think about this. When I drove to the airport yesterday morning, I drove on a private road a federal road, a county road, a state highway, and a city street. When I bought gasoline and paid for it with gas taxes, the money my gas tax went to the state. The state passed a little bit along to the city and county, none to the federal government for the federal road I drove on, none to the private entity for the private road I drove on, and the city and county didn't get enough either, so I ended up Having to be subsidized by all these other entities with a mileage-based user fee system the fee i pay can go to the road that i'm driving on it's like going into a grocery store and i pay for the groceries i buy not the groceries somebody else bought or the money that i pay doesn't go to if i buy milk the money i pay doesn't go to the baker it goes to the dairy just like it should be so with a, a better system, we won't need to worry about whether the government's going to try to force us to become vegetarians or live in high density housing because somehow that's better for the city and parish treasury. Thank you very much. And
1: now Chuck will come back with this.
2: I, I'm. It, it's it's funny because I'm. There's a part of me that feels like an old fogey. I realize I'm the younger in the debate, but no, uh, it, the the whole self-driving car thing I don't get. I don't get the fetish with self-driving cars. What's a taxi, right? Like I call the car, it shows up, it picks me up, it drives me where I want to go. How is that like a radical transformation of our places? Nonetheless, uh, there is a there is an obsession uh, in many places with self-driving cars. I I don't think they're the revolution that that people think they are, but nonetheless, I guess we'll. The future will be borne out. It will be very easy to transfer from the place we are now to the place of self-driving cars because we built a, a world for cars, right? Um, one of the things that that Randall to indicated was that the policies of the city are going to drive up housing prices and make housing unaffordable. And I want to talk a little bit about that notion uh, because I, I again, this is one of these things that I don't understand. I I am uh, generally a, a libertarian, rather, thinking person. I think at the federal level, and him and I have chatted before and debated before, at, at, at the federal level I don't think we have a lot of agreement. I, I tend to see the federal government in local land use issues as the bull in the china closet, right? Doing a lot more harm than good. Uh, but when we get down to the local level, I'm more of a Mayflower Compact kind of conservative, right? The notion that We maybe can sit down around a table, talk about these things as rational people, get out of the ivory tower and look at the real world and say, wow, we've got some huge financial problems. These are real problems that real people are gonna have to deal with. How do we deal with this? I want to talk about this issue of this idea that a free market is setting housing prices and somehow the city is going to impact that. A free market requires two fundamental uh, aspects. The first is that prices uh, for goods and services are going to be set uh, by mutual consent between people. The second is that there's going to be no like, outside interference uh, in the price being established through supply and demand from government or monopolies or any other entities. I want to look at that second one because the second one is the key important one here tonight. This is a graph of housing prices uh, since the late 1800s. This is put together by economist Robert Shiller. And what he's done is he's tracked housing prices over time. You see, in the Great Depression, prices went down. After World War II, we had the the new way of building. We had this whole boom that took place, and prices went back up. We have a little bubble in the 70s, a little bubble in the 80s, and then, of course, we're all familiar with the huge run-up in housing prices after the dot-com crash, right? We understand this. And if you ask right-leaning economists to explain this, they'll say uh, there were all kinds of federal interventions and subsidies that went amok. If you ask left-leaning economists to explain this, they'll say it's a lack of regulation, a lack of oversight. I don't really care. The practical situation I want to look at is from 2008 on. What what happened after this vote right? Because the notion that we're impacting housing prices, that the the, the layout of the land that we see, that we identify in the American dream, is somehow uh, you know an expression of people uh, in a free and open market making their preferences known, is, is just to me, absurd. When we look at like an entity like the Federal Reserve, and we study what their uh, mandate is, their mandate is what they're supposed to manipulate the economy to create jobs and grow. Right? We have to keep unemployment down. We have to keep growth happening, and we're going to lower interest rates or buy uh, you know securities or do whatever we have to do to keep that going. When we think of what happened with the Federal Reserve back in 2008 in regards to housing, what happened, right? We bailed out all the banks that made the bad loans. We bailed out all the insurance companies that made the bad loans. We uh, you know, bailed out Fannie and Freddie, the government entities that helped make all the bad loans. The Federal Reserve printed money, not only drove interest rates down to zero, but actually printed money to buy every single mortgage that was originated that got sold onto the secondary market as a way to drive down the, the cost and get people into, into houses to drive down uh, the interest rates so they could buy more homes so prices would go back. When we look at the federal government, we look at the legislative branch, the executive branch, we're getting into an election season, right? What's the mantra? It's economy, stupid, jobs, jobs, jobs. For you, us as local people in a real city with a real budget doing real things, it's very clear that the federal government and the state government will gladly do transactions that bump up jobs and GDP in the macro if we will, in the micro, take on enormous long-term obligations. If we will agree to take on all the responsibility to maintain and fix and service and take care of all this stuff, the bureaucrats and the politicians will gladly use that system to gin up more and more and more growth. I wanna show you how this has worked post-World War II. In 1949, uh, right as the GI Bill and the Federal Housing Administration and all the you know, Interstate Highway Act and all this stuff that's gonna create this great growth surge in America was taking, starting to take off, uh, you had a population of a little over 33,000 people. When we look at and analyze the feet of pipe per person, uh, at that period of time, you had five feet of pipe per person, so, so a person would have to over the course of a generation living here generate enough excess wealth and prosperity to maintain and sustain five feet of pipe. When we look at fire hydrants per thousand people, it's about two point four. When we fast forward to today, your population has grown to one hundred twenty one thousand, but your feet of pipe per person is now fifty, and your number of fire of, of fire hydrants per thousand people is now at fifty one point three. You increase your population by three and a half times by taking on burdens that are 10 times and 20 times greater. Then you can say, okay, Chuck, I did this, but we are creating wealth and prosperity and jobs and economic growth. In 1950, the median household income in Lafayette in today's dollars was 27700 Today, it's 45000 You've increased your obligations by 10 to 20 times, and you've increased the wealth of your families and households by only 1.6. This is the real world. This is where we live. These are the decisions that we have to make. And let me give you just a a, a little kind of glimpse into how this is all happening, how at the local level we've gotta get control of what we're doing here. If you look at the traditional kind of, of, of building that, that people did for thousands of years, the little shop in front of the house, right? And why would people do that? Because when they're bootstrapping a business, when they're trying to get a business started, uh, they can't hire employees. They've got to be there to manage the shop, and they've got to watch the kids at the same time, and they've got to balance all these things. So they put this little storefront up front, right? I was in Pompeii, and they had these things there from you know, thousands of years ago, right? This is the way we build. And when you do that, then over time, you could grow that business and, and, and maybe build a residence up on top and, and watch the shop that way. And then over time, you could get enough wealth to move out and maybe have an employee live up there or split it up and rent it out and have a dual income stream. This is how cities and families built wealth for generations. When we created the FHA and when we started this whole housing boom, one of the provisions was that the federal government would not back any home mortgage where you had more than 18% of the floor area as commercial. So if you wanted to do this, too bad. If you want to build a single family home, we've got all kinds of programs for that. We'll write down your down payment, we'll subsidize the interest, we'll create a secondary market. But if you want to build something like this, the kind of stuff we've built for thousands of years, go ahead. We're not going to say you can't at the federal level, although we'll encourage cities to adopt ordinances that say you can't. But we're not gonna create a market for it. So you have to go to a bank, you have to have a huge down payment, you have to have a higher rate of interest, you have far more risk. We basically made this an uneconomical option by the way we have tilted the scales in the other direction. If we're gonna pretend that this is some kind of magical market, that the prices of housing actually reflect These market forces, the hand of Adam Smith kind of moving things around, we're kidding ourselves. We are at the whims without a plan of all these forces around us. And if we don't step back and take stock of where we're at, we're just going to be kind of floating in the breeze, right? You look at Plan Lafayette and you look at the development code you've adopted, and it never mandates density. It never mandates any type of development pattern. What it does is it creates options in the marketplace. Options that have been taken away from you. Incidentally, let's look at what housing prices have done post 2000. From a condition that we all agree was a bubble, the market tried to equilibrate, right? Try to find a balance, a real price of housing that would meet sellers and buyers together in a non-manipulated market. And what have we done? That's not a future that I want. That's not a future that you want. And I I look at the city of Lafayette, not only are you leaders in this region, not only are you leaders in this state, but you're leaders nationally in taking a really hard look at why things are so financially difficult here. Your leaders could adopt a tax increase they could do tiny little you know, incremental increase in taxes and get that passed and get that approved. Some of you would be angry, some of you would be happy. But you know what that's doing? That's taking the can down the road. And what your city has done instead is said, no, we're gonna stop, we're gonna figure out what's going on, we're gonna try as best we can to plan for the future, and we're gonna try to do something a little bit different than the way things have always been. And I have a huge amount of respect for you.
1: Thank you.
3: Drastic times require what? Drastic
1: measures, yes!
3: Who said that? They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 that's a story. Her own. This has been fascinating.
0: Who oh, made city? I like you.
3: I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.